would, let's bow together in prayer. As people that need the cross, as people who do have chains, as people who aren't perfect, people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, people who are broken and a mess. However, in you there is redemption, there's healing, there is freedom for the captive, there is healing for the broken. And God, in you, there is salvation like none other, that we don't have to be where we are now, but you can, you're ever leading us towards a greater state of glory. And I pray, God, today for the two types of people that are in this room. Number one, I pray for the, the one who is lost, the one who is far, the one who is maybe interested in the things of God but has not yet given their life to you and place their faith in Christ. And I pray today as they hear this word, the word of God, that they might be saved and brought to new life. And God, I also pray for the believers in this room and whatever state they may be in, God, I pray that you would, that you would speak because they need your word. We all need your word so clearly in our lives. We need to hear your voice. We need to see your face. So help us to do that. Help us to see we're blind without you. And help us to worship and help us to see your word is true. And we pray all this in the name above every name, Jesus. Amen. I have this bad habit of listening to people or hearing people talk but not listening to them. I'm working on it. If you want to know how bad the habit is, you probably want to talk to my wife. Um, I just got this problem, and it's, you may do a lot of times. What's happened is I'm thinking of what I'm going to say more than I'm say next, more than I'm listening to that person. I'm working on it. I'm working progress here. You may have you ever done that before? You're always like anticipating what am I going to say next, not what is this person saying. And over the years, I mean, and it's been a real point for me to try to do that better. And so as we come today and we look at the I am statement that's in John chapter 11, that's where we'll be this morning, John chapter 11, I want us to focus on what is being said because there's some, in John's gospel, there's these big, long sections of dialogue in which you have Jesus and some of the religious leaders and, and different people talking to him. And there's big sections where he talks and big sections where they talk. And in John chapter chapter 11, it is very important to understand what is being said. And we need to hear the words of Jesus here as we come to this text. So if you would take your Bible, John chapter 11, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It'll be on the screen here for you in just a second. John chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary in Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So there's this guy in Bethany named Lazarus. He's got two sisters. They're going to give us some 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 editorial comment in verse two about who they are. In verse two, it says it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet with her hair, whose brothers Lazarus was ill. So there's a sick man. They're kind of giving us some identification. Verse three. So the sister sent to him saying, "Lord, he whom you love is ill." I want you to notice that. What do they say? He whom you love. There's a, this is not like some disassociated person with Jesus. Jesus knows this man very well, and the Bible says in several situations that he loved this man named Lazarus. And so we go on, and we see in verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. 
It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay? When you take that, if you take that at first glance and you don't have, maybe you don't have any context of what he's talking about here, if, if, if you hear this, this illness is not going to end in death, what does that mean usually? I'm going to say that means you're sick, but you're not going to die from it. If you go to the doctor and they, get, they, they, they find out you have something going on, and they say, this illness is not going to end in death. What are you going to be like, yes, I'm not going to die from this. But this is not what's going to happen. Lazarus is going to die. Um, this is cheat, okay? We haven't gotten there yet, but he is going to die. If you heard the story, you know he is going to die. But Jesus said, this is not going to end in death, ultimately. And he says, then he notes this. I want you to see, and we're looking at the, what people say. Try to hear this. Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. Now, glory is a big word. Well, it's actually a short word, okay? <laughs> but it's not a big idea, okay? But we use it a lot. But a lot of times, I've noticed this, we use church words that we don't understand, am I right? A lot of times we say amen, but how many of you know that means true? Well, a lot of times we use it. You get into the you get into the uh, the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. They say "Selah." You know why they say, you know why they translate it "Selah" in the in the Old Testament? Because they don't even know what it means. Okay, it probably means rest. It's a, it's some. We use words a lot that we don't understand. We think we have the context and we think we understand it, but this word "glory" means the shining forth of who God is. And so this particular situation, even if we go back to John chapter 9, where the man born blind is healed, and they ask, hey, Jesus, why is this guy blind? And they had the, the, the thought that he had to have sinned. So why is this guy blind, Jesus? Is because he sinned or his parents sinned? And what did he say? No, this is the reason this man is blind is so that the works of God could be displayed in him. And so we have this happening again, that Lazarus is not, his death, or his, his illness is not ultimately going to lead to death, but it's so that the glory of God, who God is, might shine through in a situation. The true colors of God would be seen in this situation. And it goes also, it says this, and that the Son of Man may, may be glorified through it. So the glory of God be, so, be shown, and also the glory of the Son of Man who is Jesus. And we get into verse 5. We're going to notice this again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So this is the second time we hear Jesus loving these people. So these are close associates to Jesus. They, they, Jesus, in fact, would, would camp out of their house several times. It was kind of one of those stops. You ever been to somebody's house that you just feel comfortable when you walk in their house and you don't feel awkward, like there was this guy named John that used to come to, uh, I, I knew him when I was in college, and anywhere he would go, he had this ability to feel comfortable no matter where he was or what situation he was in. And so he came to our house the first time, and my mom and dad didn't know him, but you got to know something about my mom and dad. They, they, they ran a, a hotel when I was in high school, okay? I had a, somebody stand at our house all the time. They didn't even know. They'd come in and, like, they'd kick bodies around, you know, like, who is that kid? And I'd, they'd wake me up, and I'd tell them, oh, yeah, he was like, all right, whatever. So it was not unusual for kids to, like, be frequenting our house. But this kid was different. Because John, he never felt uncomfortable in any situation. So he got there. He had never met my parents. We got back to my house in Panama City late one night from, from Gainesville, Florida. And he goes, the next morning, my parents, <laughs> they wake up and they walk into the kitchen. And John is standing there in his boxer shorts and a t-shirt. And he is cooking an egg. And like a whole breakfast, he's got bacon, eggs, and everything out. 
And he's like, hey, how are you guys doing? When my mom and dad walked in, they had no idea who this kid was. And he just helped himself. He felt pretty comfortable. These are the type of people that Jesus was. These are these close associates, that he, and he loves them dearly. And I want to make a point of noticing that. That is important in the text, because here's what happens next. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what would you expect when you find out that one of your good, close friends that you love is sick? If you don't know what's happened, if you've never read this before, and you're just, just, you stopped here and you had to think about it, what would it be? So I ran there. So I got in my car, I broke the speed limit. At this point, they wouldn't have gotten a car. So I got on my camel, and I got that thing going, and I had to got down to, to Bethany as quick as I could. That would be what most of us would do if you got that phone call or text message, you know, that's out of, you know, like 2, 2 a.m. You're like, what's wrong? And you, you go to the, you want to run to the hospital to see that ill friend, to see that person that you love. But what does Jesus do? It is said twice in this passage that he loves this man. What does he do? He stays put. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wow. That is unexpected. He just stays put. Just remember this. We're going to come back and kind of look at the significance in a second. Just hold on. You got it? File that away. Just put that in the Rolodex. Let's keep going. We see in verse 7, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, here's why this is a big problem, because they're going to have a problem with this in a second. Remember, Judea, Jesus and the religious leaders, if you've been following the train of thought in John's gospel, they have been, they've been very combative. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they want to kill Jesus. It's funny. They, Jesus has done all these miracles and these signs, and this is going to be the seventh sign that we see here when he's going to raise Lazarus. He's done all of these signs and these miracles, and they yet refuse to believe. He even opened the eyes of the blind man, and what did they do? They get angry with him. How, can he, how dare he heal someone on the Sabbath instead of seeing he's God because only God can make this guy see. They just, they missed it. And so he, and going to Judea and going down to Jerusalem, and Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed how many suburbs Nashville has now? I was in Brentwood the other day. Lord have mercy. That's money for days down there. Like the subdivisions are like 25,000 square foot houses, subdivisions down there. It's unbelievable. So you just think about Bethany as a suburb to, to Jerusalem, which is a big city. And so he was going to be two miles away from the center of those people who hate him and want to kill him. So he says, let's go to Judea after waiting two days. And here's what his disciples do. They freak. They freak out. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. They were going to throw rocks at him until he died. That is an unpleasant way to die, I would imagine. And then he goes on and says, and, you were going, and you're going there again? Have you thought about this? And then in verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours? Are there not 12 hours in the day? If, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And basically Jesus says, they're, they're freaking out. Jesus, if you go there, they're going to kill you. And Jesus says, listen, if you're walking in the light, you're not going to stumble. He says, if you're walking in truth, you're going to do what you need to do. And so Jesus, as being the son of God, as being the light of the world, says, I'm going to do what the father tells me to do. If you walk in darkness, you stumble. So for Jesus, it's obedience to God that he waits and obedient to God that he goes into a very dangerous situation. 
going on. We see in verse 10, but if anyone walks, or verse 11, it says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now the disciples, this is another proof that the Bible is exactly true, and I'll tell you why. Because the people who are should be seen as the highest level, the apostles, those who are with Jesus, they're constantly seen as dummies. They are. And here's an example of them being seen as dummies here, okay? And if, listen, if you were going to make up something, if you're going to make up a story, are you going to make yourself look good or are you going to make yourself look bad? I'd make myself look as good as possible, okay? If I'm going to make a story up, I'd be like, yeah, so then I knew exactly what to say and knew exactly what to do. But the truth is often very (laughs) much removed from how we'd like things to be, am I right? Some of you guys... We look in the mirror, and we still see our young selves, okay? We oftentimes see ourselves like we want to be as opposed to the reality of the situation. And so the, the facts, the fact that, again, in the Scriptures that we see to show their truth, yet again, as a sign of their truth, you have the disciples looking like buffoons, which is a testament to the fact that, it has, it, that it's true, because if... Who are they glorifying? Jesus, not themselves. And so we go on, and we look at this. They, Jesus said that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and they're going to take that overly literally. He's referring to death, obviously, right? If you've ever read this. If you haven't, this is new to you. He's talking about death. In verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. He's sleeping. That's good. When you're sick, if you sleep, you get rest. Your body will heal itself. That's good, Right? And Jesus, you can see him going, oh, guys, come on. And verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, let me break it down for you guys. Let me bring it down to your level here. Let me tell you exactly what's happening. Lazarus has died. He's dead. Sleeps with the fishes. He is no longer with the living. He is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Okay? And then he goes on to say, so that, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, and we're going to die with him. We're going to go to this dangerous situation. Those people are going to be right at the epicenter. The people who hate him and want to crucify him, let's go with Jesus. We're going to die there. Thomas, always the skeptic, says, hey, let's go, ride or die. I'm going to go with Jesus. So they're, going to, they're, going to, they're heading this way, but I want you to notice this. Remember, he loves this family, and he loves his disciples. And in verse 15, he says this. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you might believe, but let us go to him. Jesus lets Lazarus die because he loved him, and he loved his disciples. Yep, I just said that. That is what this passage is teaching. And I want you to understand this. As Jesus allows his people, whom he loves deeply, to go through deep, intense, but ultimately more momentary sorrow and pain in order that we might know something greater, the glory of God in our lives. I'm going to say that to you again, and just want to break this down. Jesus, as being the God-man, he allows us, 
those people that he loves, his people. He allows us to go through deep, intense pain, which is ultimately momentary because he knows that it will bring about something greater in our lives. It's like this. I took my son to the doctor. He's been sick this week. He knows at the doctor they do unpleasant things there most of the time. Besides the sucker at the end, it is not a pleasant experience, especially for anyone, but especially for a child who, you know, to see the needle. And some of you just, I, I heard needle, and you're like, oh, no, get out of here. I took him to the doctor. He's been sick for the better part of this week, and I told him, I'm taking you to the doctor. And he goes, I don't want to go to the doctor. First off, it was, it was I don't want to go to the doctor because then I'm going to get better and then I have to go back to school. And I was like, ah, what logic you have as a five-year-old. He's like, so if I go to the doctor, then I have to go back to school. I was like, no, no, no. I'm taking, and he, we're arguing about this. I said, I'm taking you to the doctor because I am a good dad and I am going to get, I'm going to help them fix you so you can go back to school and you can get an education and you won't end up on my couch at 40. The last part was in my head. I didn't say that out loud because he wouldn't have got that. He's like, I'll stay on your couch. That'll be great. And so I was talking to him. He's like, he's got a sore throat. Are they going to gag me with those giant sticks? And I was like, yep. <laughs> That's why we're going. They're going to put that thing in your throat. He's like, Dad, but I'm going to choke. Okay. And I'm like, you got to do it. Why, Dad? Because they have to check you for this thing, for, for strep throat. And if you have a strep throat, you won't get better unless you have antibiotics. I don't know. I don't want that to happen. So I'm arguing with him. I'm like, listen, this is for your good. That's why we give you shots. That's why we do these things. It's for your good. I know the medicine tastes bad, but it's for your good. And I want you to know this. And I know, I don't know your pain, but I have known pain, and I have seen pain and suffering in life. I want you to know this very, very clearly. The Lord brings that into our lives. And he works in the believer's life with it and through it because he knows that something better is going to come from it. And in this case, and in all the cases, really, it's his glory being shown in your life. It is better to suffer and to see his glory than to live a life of ease and never see who God really is. That is why he delays. It says it over and over again. He delays in coming because he loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he wants them to see the glory of God, and he wants his disciples to see the glory of God. All of his disciples, eventually, they would die. They would be, most of them were executed. And de facto, John, who's writing this, would be left to die on the island of Patmos at the end. And you think, man, does, does Jesus even love his kids, his, those he loves? Yes, he does, because there's something greater than living, because everyone dies. Everyone dies. Everyone will leave this planet unless the Lord comes back first. And there's something greater that your life can amount to. And there's an eternity after that. And he, God is more concerned about you seeing his glory, which is better for you than having the most ease in life now. God lets us go through this so we might see something greater, his glory, not just our comfort. And so we go on, we see this. He goes on in verse, get to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, 
he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is significant. Remember, we're looking at the, we're making sure we see all the little, there's little nuances all throughout here. And this isn't a conversation, but it's something to see. He's in the, he's in the grave for four days. Okay? So know this. There was a, there was a, a thing amongst the Jews. This is not a Bible teaching, but this is something that, that the Jewish people of the day would have thought. That, that somebody at, within you know, a, a two or three day period, okay, you, your, your soul is kind of hovering over your body and it can choose to enter back in if everything looks right. But on the fourth day, the end of the third day on the fourth day, that's when you're really dead. And that's when the body starts to deteriorate and the soul does not want to enter back in because it's changed its shape. Now, that's not a Bible teaching, but that was a, pro- that was a prominent idea in his day. And so when you say he's been dead four days, he is dead. Like, there is no coming back. All hope is lost in terms of earthly thinking. In verse 18, it says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, two miles off, and many of the Jews who came to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This would have been a mix when it talks about these people from Jerusalem. These are the aristocratic Jewish people, many of whom hated Jesus. They're over, and they're, they know Martha and Mary, which indicates that they were probably up well to do in society, and they've come all this way, two miles. They've walked this way or ridden their donkey or whatever to come and mourn with them. And, and funerals lasted a long time in the Middle East. They buried the body quickly, but they mourned for several weeks, and so there's this big posse of people who are hanging out at Mary and Martha's house, trying to console them, trying to pat them on the back, trying to, to, to cry with them over the loss of their brother who has been dead for four days. And then we got in verse 20. So Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, note this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Haven't we said that before? God, if you had just intervened, this would not have happened. If you would have just come in the situation, if you would have just been there, this, would, this bad thing would not have happened. Have we ever said that? Martha's going to say it and Mary's going to say it. But Jesus, he's going to see their pain. He's going to feel their pain. But he is going to be like a good father. And know that there is this pain is going to result in something greater. And so just I just want you to see this again. The Bible, not only do we read it, it reads us and it talks, it speaks to our hearts. What do it mean? It it gets us. It, it we know it knows that we vacillate, that we move in between these places of it, of faith and doubt. And we see and we see Jesus meeting these people in the intersection of faith and doubt and, and being with them and, let, and hearing their pain and, and, but knowing that he has got a better plan. And so we go on. Verse 23, but she says, Lord, if you'd been here, verse 21, my brother would not have died, verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I don't understand why you did this. I don't know why you, you tarried. I don't know why you didn't come and save him, but I do know this, that you are God. And God will hear you, and he'll give you what you ask. That is the intersection of faith and doubt. And what we see on further, we, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. She thinks Jesus is given a platitude. You know what a platitude is? You've heard it before when you're going through a difficult situation and somebody offers up some advice that is common knowledge, and it's usually not helpful. They're, you know they mean well. So if... 
as long as they caught you on a bad day, you're still loving that person, right? You're like still like, oh, okay. But you know, they tell you that. Like, it's going to work out. Just keep your head up. You've heard that before. I might even have said that to you, and it might have made you mad. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But they, she thinks Jesus is working in platitudes, okay? And, and this is a platitude related to an actual doctrine which the, that was believed by all the, the Old Testament believing Jews at the time, which was there was going to be a resurrection at the end, which means this, that every person was going to be resurrected. And, and they were going to be resurrected and judged. And those who are following God will and, and know God, they would, be, they would go into the rest, into heaven. And then there would be those who would be punished. And so he's, in, in saying that, there, that Jesus said, we'll see him again at the resurrection. Or what does he exactly say in verse 24? I'll make sure I get it right. In verse 23, he says, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, I, I know at the last day he'll rise. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I want to give you a concrete place of hope. And it's me. And he goes on in verse 25. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say there will be a resurrection. You can take that to the bank. He says, I am. Remember, I am relates to the fact that he is God in the flesh because we know I am that I am is the way God introduced himself in Exodus chapter 3 as way of recap. And so every time Jesus says I am, he is saying I am God in the flesh. So he says, I am the resurrection, which means the resuscitation, of the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you just hope one day, pie in the sky. But so many of us are just overly positive and don't have a concrete hope. How many people do you know around here just, just they don't have a concrete hope. They're like, we're going to see them again. We're going to do this. Unless you have a concrete hope, you're just saying nice things to people that may or may not be true. You're just, you're in the level of platitudes, just general, general niceties that people think is true. But Jesus says, no, 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 Mary, don't get me wrong. I am not, I'm not just trying to throw out some, some pithy words that just make you feel better. I want you to know I am in my body. I am the resurrection and the life. So as the resurrection and the life, when his people come to him, they have hope no matter what. They have hope. We have hope no matter what. Why do you say this? Because Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The hopeless, the most hopeless situation we face is not the diagnosis. It's the destination of the diagnosis. What I mean by that is you go to the doctor and they say you got something bad. It, you fear the diagnosis, and you fear what you have to go through, but you're, the hopelessness arises because you're going to the grave. And it's a hard thing to think about. It's a hard thing to do. It is a, to say goodbye to a loved one is so difficult. To say, to know death and to see death is, is an awful, awful thing, and it is a hopeless feeling because you can't do anything about it. If you could, you would swap your life for that person a lot of the time who's in the casket, but it just can't happen. It's just not the way it is. It has this powerful hold. It is the ultimate hopelessness. And in the face of the ultimate hopelessness, Jesus says, because I am the resurrection and the life, if you believe in me, 
even though you'll die, you'll live. And what did he mean by this? He says, like, listen, our death, if we're believers, our death doesn't even beat us. It doesn't. Like, it, it's not the end. Because there's life that he's promised. Later on, we have hope in whatever situation. I have a picture back there. I want to show you that this man passed away this week. Uh, he was born the same year I was. I think it's on there, Robert. I don't know, did I put it in there? Yep. His name is Nabil. I'm going to say this wrong. Qureshi. He was a man. He wrote this book called Seeking Allah, which is the Islamic God, seeking Allah and finding Jesus. And let me tell you a little story about this guy. Grew up in a very devout Pakistani, Malaysian home, and they were devout Muslims. They left um, Pakistan and moved to the United States, and he grew up here. He was um, following Islam. His parents were very devout Muslims. In college, he met a roommate. His roommate began to talk, and his roommate was a believer in Christ, and they began to talk about Jesus. And in the conversation, his roommate finally asked him, he said, Nabil, and this is over months and months, he said, Nabil, are you willing to follow wherever truth takes you? He said, hmm, I think I have to. So he looks into the claims of Jesus. He sees that they are true. And what he, what he does is the equivalent of committing treason against his parents. He trusts Christ for salvation, and he renounces Islam and embraces Christ. And what happens? His family is ruined. He shed many a tear about his, the fact that his mom and dad, who he loved so dearly, were so injured and hurt by the fact that he came to Christ. But he knew he had, no matter the cost, to follow Jesus. This man served with Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And what they do is, if you ever heard of, if you ever heard of Ravi before, it's amazing. He's an apologist, which means he defends the faith amongst the, the biggest intellectuals and takes the gospel into the hardest to reach places and to those who have the deepest questions. And this man joined him, Nabil joined him in that work. And for years he preached the gospel and he, he lived the gospel and he lived with this this background, and he lived with his parents. I mean, he loved his parents, but they, they did not agree that he, with him in following Christ. They still, to this day, have not embraced Christ. He got cancer about a year and a half ago. And you can actually go, if you want to look him up, you can actually look. He, he vlogged, which is a video blog, about his fight with cancer. And for, he believed that God was going to bring healing. But God did not bring physical healing. And this week, he passed away. I want to read to you one of his last sermons. This little excerpt of one of his last sermons. He said this. What the resurrection means is that if it comes to a point in your life where it seems that even death is inevitable and there is no way of escape, well, death is not the end. There is more. There is hope no matter what. And when Jesus is on the resurrection and the life, even if you die, if you're in me, you'll live. 
And he's going to give us a demonstration of that in just a moment when he raises Lazarus. And he's going to give us a bigger demonstration when he rises from the grave and showing that he has ultimate power over death, that death has lost its sting. It has been beaten. It is an enemy that is devoured by victory. He will show that in just a moment, but I want you to notice that we have a hope in any situation. The greatest lostness can be overcome by the light of Jesus. The hardest heart that you know can be made alive by God because we know Paul of Tarsus, remember? Or Saul of Tarsus, he becomes Paul. He becomes Paul, and he, what does he do? He takes the gospel all over. We know God uses the, the zealot, and he uses the tax collector. You're not too far. God can save. There's hope in any situation. There's hope when the diagnosis is bad. There's hope at the grave. There is hope in every situation because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, even if they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Our, we will taste death unless the Lord comes. And if we do, we still have a hope that we will get up again and we will have life. That hope is sure because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And then, not only that, we know it's true and sure because we enter into Jesus. I want to make this very clear. If you go back and look at verse 25. Look at verse 25, it says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, okay, in. I want, you to, that's, I want you to notice that. Believes in me, believes in Jesus. The word in right there is a preposition, and it's from this Greek word ice, okay, which means into, okay? So it says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, so in again, me, shall never die. So once you get this, there's this idea of us being in Christ, which is a odd idea. But we are, when, we, when the Bible says we are in Christ, that means we have entered into him. And that, that's an odd thing, but it gives us the sense of a genuine faith in Christ. We, we come in and we have a place to rest, and we are united with him. This is a hard... Think about a rainstorm for a minute. You're out and about, out in the yard, and it just comes a monsoon. Not just a monsoon, but lightning flashes. <laughs> You're making that beeline for the house. You know what I'm talking about. That one, you stop caring what people look like, what people think about how you're running. You're going to road runner that stuff, okay? Like your, your hips are dislocated and legs are swinging. You are going for the house because it's coming down on you, and it's getting scary. The wind's blowing, and you're headed towards that door. And what happens when you get, in, you, when you get to it, you enter into the house, and you enter into rest and safety, and that is the image here, that we enter into Christ. How does this happen? Does it happen by being better? Does it happen by being more religious? No. When we believe in Jesus, whoever believes in me enters in. You enter into Christ. You enter into rest. You enter into the resurrection of life. You enter into him through faith. And when you do, you are united with him. What does that mean to be united? Whatever happens to, you, whatever happens to him happens to you. And he has resurrection. He has the power. And if Christ is raised, won't we be raised? We're united with him. We've entered in. We're united. We're, we're, we're in union. It's like this. Just to give an example. My wife and I are married, so you know what happens? When I move somewhere, I don't leave her there. 
<laughs> when she moves somewhere, she don't leave me there. You know why? I'm thankful she doesn't, okay? <laughs> because we're united. The Bible uses that as an image of Christ in the church, right? We're united. We're one. Where I go, she goes. Where Jesus says, I will be. If he goes to prepare a place for us, he'll come back again. He makes all these promises. We are in him. We are united to him. So just as surely as God, God the Father accepts God the Son and his sacrifice, we are in that. So he sees us as in Christ. So we have this umbrella that covers us that is Christ. If you're left in front of God by yourself, heaven help you. You're in trouble. Ain't no lawyer going to take on your case because you're going to be guilty. But when you're in Christ, you have his innocence. You have his protection. You have his resurrection. You have life. And just as surely as Jesus is raised, if you're in him and under his protection and united to him, you will be raised again. And this, and then death, it holds no power anymore. My wife lied to me one time. She said we were taking a normal airplane to Haiti, the country. It wasn't a normal airplane. It was from the World War II era. The thing wasn't even wasn't even level. It was sitting back on that rinky dink back tire. I could have yelled at her all day long. I was so angry. I was like, "You're gonna put me on this little puddle hopper, and we're gonna ride in this thing for six hours." Well, it's more than six. We're gonna stop in the Bahamas and refuel. Can we get out in the Bahamas? No, you have to stay on the tarmac. This is awful. We watching the Caribbean can't get above the clouds because it's not it's it's not a compressed cabin. If we did that, we'd suffocate. Like, what do you do? Why? Why did why did we not call an airliner? Why are we flying on this little thing? Are you insane? And I realized something. I'm going to die. <laughs> Obviously didn't. But I was kind of I was real nervous about this trip, going to third world country. We're flying in a glorified lawnmower, uh, and I am not feeling this. The door of the the door of the the cockpit's flinging wide open. They laid out donut holes at the front and said, "If you want a donut hole, come and get one." That was the flight service. You're making your way down. They grab a donut hole. They didn't serve coffee because you burn yourself. The thing goes. They came over me this sense, and I have to fight with myself about this. And it's like, Matt, you're already dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no, I live, Christ lives in me. So if He's ready for me to die, then I'm going to die. I've, all my works are done, and it's time for me to go. Till that day, I'm bulletproof, man. And then when that happens, I'm still bulletproof because I'm with Him. Until he decides to get my mangled, dead body, my disintegrated body up from the ground and unite it with my soul, I'm fine. I'm with him. That's exactly what he teaches. And when we enter into him, it is we are in him. We have this new thing, and that opens us up. We say, I'll never do that. We, never, we, we live in fear, and, and, and the Bible calls us away from fear to faith, and here is how it does it is by giving us sure, firm foundation and promises well going on i want you to look down with me in verse um uh, verse 26 she asked he asked him do you believe this i think that's a question we all need to ask do you believe it not only do you not only will you assent to the facts physically mentally okay i want you to ask do you believe this enough for it to transform your life because that's the belief we're talking about here do you believe this and what is what does she say she said yes lord 
I don't get it. I see the pain. I feel the pain. My brother's dead. I don't see the hope in it. I, I, you said you're the resurrection. I don't get it completely, but yes, I believe that you're the Christ. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God who's coming into the world, which means you're coming and bringing your kingdom. I believe it. I don't get it all. I don't know how it all works out, but I believe. I will trust you. Verse 28 says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but, but was still in the place where Martha met him. So Mary gets up and she, she brings the posse in verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So this, this group of mourners, their job was to be with Mary. So she gets up, and they thought she was overcome with grief, and she's going to run to the tomb to weep for her brother. But who is she running to? She is running to Jesus. And so we get this. And so the, it's Mary followed by the posse of mourners in verse 32. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, notice she's going to say the exact same thing that Martha said. Remember, we're looking at words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly what Martha says. If you'd have been here, if you'd come through, remember, he allows us to go through suffering and pain because he loves us and he wants to show us something greater, the glory of God in our lives. It goes on in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And then you have verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then you have the shortest, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. If you want to memorize one, there you go. Uh, walk away today, I got some scripture memorized, Jesus wept. It's interesting, Jesus became angry, agitated, troubled. He became, there was a, there's a mix here in these words that we see in verse 33 of anger mixed with sorrow. I believe Jesus is angry at the, the state of sin, what sin has done. We die because of sin. We die physically, we're dead spiritually, and we will die eternally because of sin. But Jesus, he meets us in our pain as the suffering servant as the one who knows what it's like to be tempted and tried like us but without sin he meets us in our sorrow he doesn't just say hey i'm going to do something better he mourns with us now he feels the tenderness in his heart and he becomes angry at death and he is going to do something about sin and death and he is going to feel the pain of his people as he watches those people cry and mourn over someone that they love and we go on and he says in verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he opened his eyes that the blind man have kept this man from, from dying? So there's the scorn here in verse 38. I want you to see this, and Jesus deeply moved again. Jesus is upset. He loved this man, and he let this man go through this. Jesus loves us even when we're going through trials because he's working a greater, greater thing in our lives. He knows our pain. He's with us there. We need to think about the good shepherd. Remember we talked about that last week. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil because you're with me, your rod and your staff to comfort me. Jesus is the good shepherd. He follows that. He fulfills that. And we get here in verse 38, and Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. 
Martha said to the dead man, or Martha, and Martha, the sister of the dead man. Notice that. They're emphasizing this. You know he's dead. You've been reading this passage. It's not like you just picked it up. They're emphasizing the fact that he's dead. He is dead. And it says, Lord, by the, it says, Martha, in verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It's not going to be a pretty picture if you open that. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? Now, this is so important to see. I want you to see this is the point. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, and he's going to pray here, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Remember what, what Martha had said. I believe you. God, if, if you say something, ask for God or something, he'll give it to you because I believe you're the Christ. So he is standing in front of all of these people, and he is saying, Father, I know you hear me. Verse 42, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. So why is he doing all this? Why is this happening? So that people would believe, so a greater glory of God might be displayed. In verse 43, it says, then he said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Lazarus, come out. He commanded the dead man to get up. I can barely make my dog get off the couch. I can't get her to come in most of the time. He is there at this horrible scene. People crying. The stench of death is there. And he just looks up. He says, God, you got this. I know you hear me. I want people to know that you're doing this work. If God didn't approve of this, this definitely wouldn't have happened, right? He's addressing the Father directly. Obviously, God is at work here. He says, Lazarus, come out. And that heart that has been dead and still for four days beats. And the blood courses and the synapses fire circulation returns and he's alive he was dead there was no hope four days he's not coming back in the heart's beating why because jesus has the power and he says come out and he gets up the dead man gets up now you some of you who have more cynical minds may be thinking really you believe that you believe that this happened? This was written not long after these events took place. Most of the people could actually have met Lazarus and Mary and Martha. They're still living when this was written. Or probably around that time this was written in the first century. It would be easy to debunk this. Go find that guy. Go find them. Find all these people. The people who wrote this died for this. They look like buffoons in it. They held to this story to the point of death. This is true. This is crazy. But it's true. If you've ever been to a funeral and you said, man, they look like they could just get up. You know why? Because death is wrong. It's, the, it's, it's sins. It's sin sting. But Jesus has the power, and he has the power. And he says, Lazarus, get up. And Lazarus gets up. He gets up. The man, and then it says, verse, it, says, it says this, verse 44, the man who had died came out. 
He came out. And his hands and feet were bound in linen strips, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He comes out like a mummy, wrapped up, got his face wrapped up. They were about to anoint his body, and he comes out, and he is alive. And this points to something. This is the greatest sign. You know what happens if you go and read on? The Pharisees hate him, and they want to kill him even more because of this. And, and for us, and that shows their blindness. How could they not see? This happened right in front of them. This is an eyewitness account. They were there. There was a whole big crowd. This didn't happen in secret. It wasn't like they were trying to hide it. It was in this big crowd of people, all the mourners, all the people. It wasn't like some story that was, couldn't be verified. People saw this. Probably freaked them out. It would, it would do me, man. I'd never go back to Bethany. I'd be like, there's a circle here. I ain't going to that place. People get out of the grave. He's alive. He is alive. And Jesus, at the end of this gospel, will be crucified. The most heinous death that anybody could die. He didn't deserve it. He was crucified between two criminals who did deserve it. He didn't. And he died on a cross. The sky grew black as we see the sins of the world were placed upon Christ. The sky drew black. The wrath of God came down. The veil in the temple was torn, and he laid in a borrowed tomb. And it was guarded by Roman soldiers, and it was sealed. These are all verifiable facts, eyewitness testimony. And then he rose. And he appeared to over 120 brothers. He appeared to mass groups of people. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared, and he is risen, and people have died for that message, and it is true. And so I want you to know something. Because Jesus is the resurrection of life, and because that is true, because he did get up, and we have eyewitness testimony that proves this and shows again and again that he is literally raised from the dead, and he is coming again. We have a firm foundation for our hope. It's Christ. If he is raised and we're in him, then we will be raised. So death doesn't have victory over us. It is just momentary. It is bad. It's awful. We will cry. We will hurt. But you know something, that God is there with you in that. And he is working in that situation something greater, that the glory of God might be displayed in your life and the lives of other people. And knowing the glory of God is what you were made for. You aren't made to just be happy. You were made to know God. You were made to know him, to see him, to know his glory. That is what is the ultimate purpose of life. It's not that you could live a life of relative ease and die in comfort. We're doing everything we can to die comfortably. And there's something greater. There's the glory of God that is seen and displayed in these situations. So our hope is not in platitudes. It's in a person. So here's the thing. When we say at a funeral or we say in situations that are difficult that we have hope, we're not just being super positive people. You don't have to be a super positive person to be a believer. You just have to be one who believes the promises of God. Because there's many of you that, that just they see somebody that's horribly hopeful, okay, and you just want to, like, punch them. 
because they're just ever chipper and their, their car exploded and life is so bad and, and they're just like, yeah, everything's going to be good, okay? And they're just positive. The call of Christianity is not to be a positive person, but it's to be a person who believes this, that there is no situation ever that you're hopeless and our hope is firmly rooted in Christ. So if, you, if someone tells you, if, when you say things will work out for other people and other believers and they say that's crazy, you say, I know it is crazy, but Christ is risen and so will I. How can you have any type of joy or comfort in this situation? Because Christ is risen and so am I. I'm in him. How can you believe in this hopeless situation? Well, it's hopeless, and I'm going to cry a bunch of tears, and I'm going to just go through this difficult season, but I know something. In the face of all this pain, God's working a greater glory, and secondly, he's risen, so I'm fine. He's resurrection and the life. He got up. He made Lazarus get up. He's got, he, he'll get you up if you're in him. And I want you to know this, too. Our, found, our hope is sure. It's not based on, I, mean, I hope things get work out. It's not some pie-in-the-sky precious moments idea of like, listen, if you just believe, things will work out. No, not just belief and belief. That's stupid. If you believe in Christ, things will work out. You know why? Because he is risen. Stop. Stop believing in things that are dumb. And believe in Christ. I mean that with all love that I could tell you. But just to be positive is stupid. You know why? Because you're going to die. Can I be more plain about this? So when I hear somebody in the grocery store, I have my heart breaks for them. and like, yeah, things are just going to work out. What leads you to that? The newspapers? Yeah, everything looks like it's going to work out great. The hurricanes? The earthquakes? Yeah, it's just going to work out fine. Good for you. Oh, oh, you want to, you think everything's not real fine? You know what's going to happen? Even if you've got a, you know, really good you know, lifespan, maybe 90 years old, you're still going to die. Makes you think it's going to work out so well. In Christ, we have hope. It's not empty platitudes. It's not, it's not some schmuck that tells you everything's going to work out fine. It is the risen Jesus that has our hope there. And I want us to be clear about that. Unless our hope is in him, our hope is pointless. He is it. He is it, and in him, though we die, we will live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If we could, Joey, come on up. We're going to pass, and also our team, to pass out communion. We're going to take communion together. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've come to that place where you have passed out of death into life and you believe in him, we invite you to take communion with us. It's a symbol of the fact that Christ has died that his body was broken, his blood was spilt, that we might have forgiveness of sins. As we pass these out, if you're a believer, take this. And we're in a moment, we'll take it together. And until then, I'd ask you to take a moment and to consider your life. Jesus asked this question, do you believe this? And I want us to consider that. And if we did believe it, if we do believe it, what are the ramifications? Do you believe this? Take a moment, whatever posture you need to get. Contemplate that, and in just a moment, we'll take the supper together.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right before the crucifixion. He was in the upper room with his disciples, and he took bread, and he said, when he's broken it, take, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In like manner, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this is my blood, the new covenant, my blood, taken and drink. As often as we do this, we declare the Lord's death until he comes.